Good morning, Four Corners. Here we are again, gathered to worship the Lord and to hear from His precious Word. I wonder, as you sing those words, that He has washed all my sins away. Washed all my sins away. Are you conscious of that this morning? Conscious of the fact that Christ has washed all of your sins away. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have put your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, He promises us in His Word that He has indeed washed all of our sins away. Past sins, sins we've even committed in the last minute, and sins we will go on to commit, He has washed them all away with his precious blood. I love that song, and what a reminder that is for us as we confess our sins, and then we are assured that in the midst of our sinfulness, that God has pardoned us through Christ. If you would, please go with me to Genesis 28. Genesis 28, we continue to work our way through this first book of the Bible, this foundational book for all of Scripture, giving us so many introductions In fact, everything we come across is an introduction because we haven't come across it yet, as we haven't read any other book yet, as we are going through, at least if we're we're thinking of the first, uh, those who encountered this book first, as Moses would have delivered it to Israel. Everything we come to is is the first time, the first time we get the idea of blessing, the first time we get the idea of covenant, the first appearances of angels, and all of these things are, are coming to us in Genesis. It really does set the tone for how we read all of the Bible. And you can see, even in the book of Revelation, all the allusions to Genesis and all the ways that Genesis, uh, the ideas of Genesis are being carried forward in Scripture. I was recently talking to my dad about a study. He's a pastor as well. And I was talking to him about a study that his church has been doing on the names of God. And maybe this is something you've done before. You've read a book or you have gone through the Bible and looked for the names of God and underlined those, maybe written those out. But this is a very fruitful uh, thing to do, to look at the names of God found throughout Scripture. And we were discussing how much can be learned about God's character by looking at His names. And this is something I think that we've already seen several times just in the book of Genesis. So let me just give you a few examples of those. Uh, In chapter 16, verse 13, Hagar calls God Atah el Roi, which means you are a God of seeing. So we see there a name, a reference to God in this way. In 17.1, God says to Abraham, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai. And in chapter 22, verse 14, one that's probably uh, maybe well known among us, Abraham calls the place of Mount Moriah Yahweh Yireh. Or maybe you learn this from the King James, Jehovah Jireh. This is uh, the Lord will provide. But one of the things that is truly remarkable about the names of God is that he actually attaches his name to the names of individual people. This is, this is remarkable, particularly to the patriarchs, the fathers of the covenant. We saw this back in chapter 26, verse 24, where God says to Isaac, I am the God of Abraham, your father. And probably the most well-known instance of this comes at the burning bush when the Lord appears to Moses And he says that he is the I am, which is totally boggles the mind that God is the I am. That while ancient peoples are worshiping all sorts of creatures and images of alligator gods and and the sun god and so forth. That God reveals himself in these deeply philosophical terms. I am who I am. He is the self-existent one. But after he reveals himself in this way, he says in Exodus 3.15... Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, and then listen, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then he says this, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered 
throughout all generations. And we see this way of referring to God being carried over even into the New Testament. Jesus will refer to passages where God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But even in early Christian preaching, after the resurrection of Jesus, we will see Peter, as he's there with John in chapter 3 of Acts, verse 13, Peter says this, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So we see this language, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, attaching himself to the names of these men. Well, as we've been going through Genesis up to this point, We have watched God be the God of Abraham. We saw that chapter after chapter after chapter, starting in Genesis 12, we've watched God be the God of Abraham. And then we've watched him be the God of Isaac. But today we come to God as the God of Jacob. We have already been introduced to Jacob. He's not a new character to us. But God has really been, in some ways we would say, behind the scenes in Jacob's life. So we saw God working behind the scenes at his birth. God comes to Rebekah, his mother, and gives her an oracle about the future of Jacob and the future of Esau. And then we saw God working behind the scenes, really, in his providence with the selling of the birthright. That that Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. And then we saw this with Isaac, even in the midst of the deception. As Jacob goes in and deceives his father Isaac in order to get the blessing, we've seen God behind the scenes, but we haven't seen God putting himself there in Jacob's life in a way that Jacob can see and understand and hear. But today in chapter 28, we see the beginnings of a relationship between God and the patriarch Jacob. So that's why I've entitled the sermon today, The God of Jacob. So let me just give you a few references throughout the scriptures. This is a recurring word or, or, or name for God that we find all throughout scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, the God of Jacob. And in fact, throughout the Old Testament, the God of Jacob appears more than the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac. That language, the God of Jacob, is the dominant one among the patriarchs. Let me just give you a few examples of this. One comes from our call to worship. Psalm 46, 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Or Psalm 75, 9, but I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. Psalm 81, 1, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. And then to get out of the Psalms, Isaiah 2, 3, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And then interestingly, we get a reference to David in 2 Samuel 23, 1. David is called the anointed of the God of Jacob. So we find this throughout. And today, what's really interesting is that we get the privilege of going back to the origins of this language, to the origins of this name for God. So we'll encounter it all throughout the Old Testament, the God of Jacob, the God of Jacob. But today we get to see how all that's packed into that name, all that is packed into that reference to God. There is a reason, by the way, that we have Psalm 46, 7 as our call to worship. There is a reason that we sing the words, O God of Jacob, be my strength. Why? Because we're not just talking about the God of Jacob as some distant historical figure. When we come to God and his dealings with Jacob, we are seeing our God and our story. The story of the covenant faithfulness of God to his servant Jacob is the story of God's covenant faithfulness to us, those who are in Jacob's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we really are seeing our story, our history. These are not just ancient tales. This is our story 
as Christians. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we come to Genesis 28. Genesis 28, verses 1 to 22. This is the Word of God. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. You can go ahead and be seated. This is the Lord's word. This is our story. This is the story of the nation of Israel. Historically, their father, Jacob, is the father of the nation. His name is changed to Israel. Therefore, the descendants of Israel are called Israelites. This is our story. Those who are found in the Israelite Christ. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we thank you for your word. We come to it, Lord... uh, Humbly, and we ask you to further humble us. We pray that our hearts would be filled with joy as we consider what you have done throughout history to save us, to save a people for yourself from every tribe, tongue, and nation, a people who will worship you in glory and perfect bliss forever. Ages upon ages upon ages. Father, we glorify you this morning because you have done this great work through Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King. 
Father, we thank you that he is the great deliverer. We thank you that through the, the very specific and common ordinary lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you brought through their line, through Judah, through David, the Christ, who is God over all, who is blessed forever. Amen. Father, we praise you for your goodness towards us, that you have demonstrated your provisions and your care for us in so many ways. You take care of us day by day. You teach us and instruct us. You guide us with a shepherd's hand in wisdom. You guide us and train us in righteousness. You watch over our homes and protect our children. You you instruct them in the ways of the Lord. You give us good habits and disciplines. You are gracious to us in so many ways, Father. And we just take this opportunity this morning to praise you for your blessings. We see these blessings in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's lives. And we thank you for all the spiritual blessings that you have granted us in Christ, in the heavenly places, that you have given us all things that we need that pertain to life and godliness. Father, we ask that as we come to your word this morning, that we would each individually sit under it. Father, that we would let it do its work. We pray that you would convict us of our sins, that we would not be rebellious and hardened in our hearts against you, but Father, that we would be malleable in your shepherd's hand, in your potter's hand, that you, would, that you would change us this morning. We would not leave here the same way that we came. We believe that your word is efficacious. It is powerful. You spoke, and it was, and you spoke, and it was this morning, Father. Through your word again, would you affect change? We love you, Lord. We thank you that you loved us first. And chose us in Christ before the world began. Father, we pray this morning that those who are among us who do not know you, who have not tasted forgiveness of sins, who have not tasted your grace, God, that you would shower them this morning with your mercy. Lord, we know that if you do not unlock the heart, it will remain locked. And so, God, we ask this morning that through your word, the word of truth, the word of life, that you would unlock hearts, that you would shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ on new hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis 28, and as we come to this chapter, as the story of Genesis now begins to center on the relationship between God and Jacob, there are three things that I want to consider. And we see this unfolding in these three frames as we go through this chapter. So first, recognition. Second, revelation. And third, response. Recognition, revelation, and response as we go through chapter 28. So let's look first at recognition. And to do that, I want to put the spotlight on verses 1 to 9 again. So let's read those again carefully. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Here we have an interaction between Isaac and Jacob. And I think it comes off to us. I don't know if this is the case for you, but certainly the case for me. It comes off to us as a bit abrupt. It it seems a little disjointed 
as we have been reading through chapter 27, and now we come to chapter 28, it's a bit abrupt for us. And I think this is the case for two reasons. First, we really haven't seen any kind of relationship between Isaac and his son Jacob. In fact, all we have seen is that Isaac just sort of fawns over his son Esau. He, he really favors and loves his son Esau, and primarily because of what he can get out of Esau, because he gets game in his mouth, as we talked about literally, as it says, that he, he is fed this, this meat by his son, who is a hunter. But Jacob has been, up to this point, from Isaac's perspective, He has been the overlooked son. Jacob just has not had any kind of relationship at all with his father. So when we come to chapter 28, it just strikes us as a bit abrupt. Kind of comes out of nowhere. And then secondly, I think it's abrupt because it comes right after the deception of chapter 27. I mean, what have we just been looking at? What story have we just been going through and been reading last week? And that is that Jacob goes into his father, exploits his weakness. He cannot see. He's aging. And he deceives him to get this blessing. He has dishonored his father. He has tricked him into giving him the blessing. He has lied. And we talked about last week. He heaped lie upon lie upon lie to his own father. But when we come to the beginning of chapter 28, it seems as though this hasn't even happened. We don't have any rebuke. We don't have any apology. I mean, you expect to have some sort of discourse between Isaac and Jacob where Isaac explains to him how what he did was sinful and he should not have gone about it that way and and rebukes him. And Jacob says, I'm sorry, Dad, I shouldn't have done that. Some sort of rebuke, apology, discourse. But that's not what we get at all. Here we are. Isaac blesses Jacob as Jacob. Before, Isaac blesses Jacob in his own mind as Esau. He thinks he's Esau. He blesses him in the place of another or as another. But here in 28, Isaac blesses Jacob as Jacob. And it is as though nothing negative has happened prior to verse 1. And in order to understand this, we have to go back to the words of chapter 27 that Isaac, the words in chapter 27 that Isaac spoke to Esau. So let me bring you back to verse 33. Chapter 27, verse 33. This helps us understand why we have this abrupt shift. Verse 33, then Isaac trembled very violently. This is after he realized what had happened. Esau comes in. Jacob has taken the blessing. He's left. Esau comes in. Says, Dad, where's my blessing? Here's, here's Here's your meal. He says, then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came. And I have blessed him. And then here, here's the words I want you to focus on. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Even though Jacob took it by deceit, the blessing must stand. Isaac had spoken it, and God had overseen it. He had ordained it. He was in control over it. It could not, nor should not, be retracted. And so that explains for us the abrupt shift. It is this recognition that we are seeing in verses 1 to 9. As we come to verses 1 to 9 of chapter 28, we are seeing in Isaac's own mind the recognition that this stands, a sort of, a sort of flowing out from verse 33 of the previous chapter. Has Isaac known the oracle of God all along? Remember God came to Rebekah? Has Isaac known that all along, that the older would serve the younger? We don't know. Did Isaac know about the birthright that Esau had sold to Jacob for a bowl of lentil stew? We don't know. The text does not tell us how much Isaac knows. Now that the deception has occurred, has Rebekah revealed everything to Isaac? This is what's happened, Isaac. We simply do not know. These are all questions we ask. You know, we talked about that in our gospel community group a lot this past week. These are the kinds of things we want to know. 
but the text does not tell us. We can make inferences and we can weigh it out, but we just don't know. But what we do know is that by this point, Isaac recognizes that all that has happened falls very much under the sovereignty of God. And that it is not Jacob, that it is Jacob, not Esau, whom God has chosen to carry on, as it says in verse 4, the blessing of Abraham. God has chosen Jacob, not Esau. By the way, I've heard recently folks who, uh, who, have, who argue that uh, election in Romans chapter 9. So in Romans chapter 9, Paul will refer to this story as, uh, uh, to, to explain God's electing purposes throughout history. And one of the things that, that is very interesting is, is you will hear people argue that that election is really a national election. It's not a specific election. But that's to miss the precise words of what Paul says there in Romans 9. In Romans 9, it's clear that Paul says that God chose Jacob specifically over Esau before they had done anything either good or bad. Yes, Jacob becomes the nation of Israel. Yes, Esau becomes the nation of Edom. But God's election of Jacob over Esau is a specific individual election of one over another before either of them had acted in any way. And so when we come to this portion of chapter 28, we see an Isaac who begins to understand very much what God has been doing. And I think what we can extract from this is a little bit of a lesson here on making peace with the past. As Christians, we are the kind of people who view past things differently than those who do not know the Lord. Because those of us who know the Lord, who who know his word, (coughs) are those who understand that from this point, all the way looking back, all the things that we can see in our lives, we are people who see the past underneath the umbrella of God's sovereignty. It's a very different worldview, one in which we see past failures, past offenses underneath the sovereignty of God. And I think that's what we have going on here with Isaac. It's an abrupt transition because the past is the past. Isaac is moving forward with the clear plan of a sovereign God. That's where we pick up here. So what does Isaac say to Jacob? Verse 1 gives us a little outline. He blessed him and directed him. At the end of chapter 27, <coughs> excuse me. At the end of chapter 27, Rebekah had voiced her strong discontent with the Hittite wives of Esau. Esau had married these women of the land, and they had become bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. And so at the end of chapter 27, she goes to her husband Isaac and explains to him, Oh, my life is awful because of these Hittite women. Wouldn't it be terrible if Jacob marries a Hittite woman as well, a woman of the land? She did not want Jacob to marry those women. But of course, we know what her deeper motive is. It's not that Jacob would not marry Hittite women. That would be bad. But her deeper motive is that she recognizes, unlike Isaac at this point, who seems to not know this, that Esau wants to kill Jacob. And so Rebekah wants to get Jacob out of town, wants to protect her favorite son. And so she goes to Isaac and suggests that he send, or at least uh, imply that he send Jacob away to marry a woman from her kinspeople. So in response to Rebekah's instigation, Isaac directs Jacob to find a wife from Abraham's kinsmen, from the family of Rebekah, just as Abraham had done for him. We remember the story back in Genesis 24 where Abraham goes to his servant. He's getting very old, and he says, Look, do not find a wife for my son Isaac from the people of the land, from the Canaanites. This land is, is set to be, these people are set to be destroyed. God had already re- revealed that to Abraham. And this is your land, Abraham. You will inherit this. 
And so what does he do? He sends his servant back to his kinspeople back in Haran to get a wife for his son. And that's what we find going on here. And then in this context of sending him away from the land and to find a wife, Isaac gives Jacob a blessing. And as we look at this blessing, it really centers on on two things. And these are not surprising to us, land and offspring, reassuring him that he will find a wife and he will return to the land. That's very interesting because he's sending him away from the land and he's sending him to find a wife. And so these are two things that are a bit shaky, right? He doesn't have a wife. He's got to go get one and he's being sent away from the land. And so how reassuring it would have been for him to hear that the blessing of God, the blessing of Abraham involved both offspring and land, which he currently did not have. And everywhere we look in this blessing, we see continuity with Abraham. Beginning in verse 23, God Almighty bless you. Takes us back to Abraham in 17.1. I am God Almighty. And to chapter 12, verse 2, when God first comes to Abraham and calls him, he he promises him, he says, I will bless you. And here we have all of that being pulled together in the words, God Almighty bless you. So Abraham, the blessing over Abraham going straight to Jacob. And the language of being fruitful. What about that language? Being fruitful And multiplying, that brings us all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 28. Remember early on as we were going through Genesis, we talked about that promise that God made to Adam and Eve as he was cursing Satan, the serpent. That promise that that one would come who would crush or bruise the head of the serpent. One would come who would crush a descendant of Eve who would crush Satan's head. And all along, we've been looking for that one who would, who would sort of eliminate the fall, who would undo the fall and bring us back to that being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. And then we get this language of being fruitful and multiplying, appearing back again with the patriarchs, that this is the means by which the line through which God would do this work of making humanity fruitful, filling the earth, a new heaven, And a new earth. So, as we come to this point, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac is now very much the God of Jacob. And what we read in verses six to nine, that little bit there about Esau, what we read in these verses is that while Jacob is obediently and faithfully setting out to take hold of this blessing that goes back to Abraham, Esau decides that the thing to do, he's watching all of this unfold. His father has reiterated the blessing on Jacob, knowing it's Jacob, and has sent him away to get a wife. Esau's watching all of this, of course, with hatred and anger in his heart. And his takeaway from all of this is that what he needs to do is to marry a wife, to take a wife who's part of the family. In order to win his father's favor, He needs to marry a relative. And so he goes and takes a daughter of Ishmael, the rejected son. Esau is a man who simply does not get it. A daughter of Ishmael is not the answer. Food, possessions, dad's favor, these are the things that drive this man Esau. And what he is trying to do here is simply gain favor with his father. This is a man who cares nothing about God cares nothing about the promises given to Abraham, the patriarch. He cares only about his belly and about his dad's favor. So we see the recognition on the part of Isaac. But secondly, we come to Revelation. Look at verses 10 to 15. 10 to 15. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. 
And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Here we have Jacob on his journey. In one sense, he's running for his life. He knows that Esau wants to kill him, and so he's running for his life. But in another sense, he's trying to find a wife. So this is a man who has much to think about. And as he's thinking about these things, worrying undoubtedly about these things, we recognize also that he's all alone. He has very little, nothing as it were, so much so that he doesn't even have a a, a satchel or anything like that to put underneath his head, only a stone. He's all alone with nothing, or so he thinks. So he thinks. He takes a stone, puts it under his head, or it might be that he puts it beside his head. It's a little unclear. Puts it next to his head for protection or underneath his head as a pillow, and he falls fast asleep. But as he's sleeping, something remarkable happens. Something unexpected, something awesome, he says. He comes face to face in a vivid dream with the Lord himself with the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of his grandfather, the God of his father, appears to him in this dream. Just as God had appeared, and remember we talked about that going all the way back to Abraham, that God makes himself known. He appears to the patriarchs just as he had appeared to Abraham and Isaac. Here he also does the same for Jacob. And as we look at this scene, this revelation, it really comes with with two things. It comes with an image and a message. So let's look first at the image. What is the imagery here in this dream? The image is of a ladder or a stairway between heaven and earth. The Lord is situated at the top of this ladder in heaven and on the ladder, moving up and down the ladder between heaven and earth, there are angels, angelic beings. Now we know in Genesis 24, 7, Abraham reassures his servant as he sends his servant off to get a wife for his son Isaac. He says this to him, that God will send his angel before you And you shall take a wife for my son from there. So we've already been given a little bit of information about what angels are and what they do. And as we come to these angels ascending and descending on this ladder, I think we are to conclude that these are servants of God, simply put, who watch over his people. That's what angels are. They are servants of God who watch over his people. They go from heaven and earth as they carry out God's protective work on behalf of his people. And that's exactly what we find in that passage that is most cited when we talk about angels. Hebrews 1.14. This is what the writer says. Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. You know, what strikes me about this passage is that in a real way, even though we don't sense it, even though we don't see it, we don't know it or don't realize it, or oftentimes are not cognizant of it at all, this is the kind of thing that is happening to each of us who belongs to Christ moment by moment, All the time, everywhere. Is that God is ministering to us with his angels. If we lived in light of this image, if we lived in light of these truths, I think it would affect 
the extent to which we get discouraged in any given moment, that God has left us, that God has abandoned us, that we're all alone, that he doesn't hear our prayers, he doesn't care for us. This is, a, this is a picture. Let this burn into your mind, child of God. This is a picture of the reality of the connection between heaven and earth for those who know the Lord. This is your life. This is your existence before God. So what does this image communicate to Jacob? Well, essentially, it communicates, it reinforces the very same thing that God goes on to say. And so let's look now at the message. So we see the image, and now we see the message. This is a message of promise that involves four key elements that we've seen over and over and over again. These aren't new to us. And by the way, let me just say this about Genesis. You might be thinking that it's really just too much repetition. You know, the same ideas, the same words, the same themes. But that is an effect that the writer of Genesis, that Moses, and that the Holy Spirit who inspired Genesis wants to leave on the reader. It's an important effect. Because what we are to take away from that is that God is unchanging in his steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. Going all the way back to the very beginning, that, of course, God is operating with Abraham In the same way he does with Isaac. And in the same way he does with Jacob. In the same way he does with the nation of Israel. And the way he is operating with us today. With steadfast love and faithfulness. So we've seen these things over and over again. I'll go through them quickly. First the land. Although he is leaving the land. God assures him that it will be his and his descendants. Second offspring. Like the dust of the earth. They will spread in every direction. There will be so many of them, like the stars of heaven, like the dust of the earth. That's the language that we've encountered so far in these promises. This is how prolific he will be. Third, blessing for all peoples through you, verse 14. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Paul says this is the gospel Paul says that this that the scriptures preach the gospel there with Abraham that through Abraham's descendant through Christ all the families of the earth would be blessed and now we see this carrying over from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob and fourth personal presence and protection going back to the image verse 15 behold i am with you and will keep you wherever you go And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So let me say it this way. Those last words that I just read from verse 15 are imaged in the ladder. The ladder itself shows that God is working in Jacob's life. And that angelic beings are ministering to Jacob. And that these angels who are moving between heaven and earth will be present with Jacob as he moves with just his staff in hand alone into a new place where he will be deceived, where he will be taken advantage of, and where he will return fearing the murdering, murderous intent of his brother Esau, God assures him that he will be with him and he will keep him. This language of keeping Jacob is the language of a shepherd. It's the same kind of imagery that we get in Jude 24 for Christians. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to protect you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The God who kept Jacob in the midst of all the trials he faced. And we're going to go on to read about all of the things that Jacob faced. And we we said this last week, that at the end of his life, as he's standing before Pharaoh, he says, my days on earth have been few and hard. That's Jacob's life. That's Jacob's assessment of his life. But through all of it, the Lord was with him. God was sending his angels to shepherd him, to protect him. I want to say a word here for us by way of application. Just as this prepared Jacob for the difficulties he would face, so too does God's word prepare us for the difficulties we face. Constantly, 
constantly, the people of God need to be told, God is keeping you. God will not let go of you. I love the language of John chapter 10. Jesus describes us as being in his hand. No one can take us out of his hand. No one can take us us out of his father's hand. He keeps us. And throughout all the temptations and trials that we face, we constantly need to hear the word of Scripture. God is keeping you, and He will keep you. He will watch over you. He will be with you. He is a God to you, as He told Abraham. Before we move on, I want to bring you back to this image briefly. The stairway, the ladder, the object that joins heaven and earth. I was talking with Doug earlier, and I, I send him the scripture passage, uh, send the, the reader and Doug the scripture passage uh, before the service, so, uh, usually on Friday. And this is the parallel passage that kind of goes along with the text that we'll be, we'll be looking at. And when I gave him John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51, he said that he started to read through it and thought that maybe I had just put in the wrong scripture. But then he got to the end of it and he realized why this scripture is a parallel for the text that we are looking at today. In John chapter 1, Jesus is getting all of these disciples. The disciples of John are starting to follow him and they're going, John the Baptist that is, and they're going to get other people and they're starting to to surround Jesus. He's getting a group of disciples. And one of them, Nathaniel, comes up to Jesus and after... A bit of dialogue, Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, what in the world is Jesus talking about? He's talking about this story. Jesus is saying that what happened in that random, ordinary, dusty place where Jacob was lying on that stone, that that is happening In my coming, that here heaven and earth meet. Here in Christ, we find God's provisions and God's protections. And here in Christ, man reaches up to God. Only in Christ. You will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man because this is a picture, this is a type of the mediatorial role of Christ, that he brings us to God. He links heaven and earth. And each of us who is a Christian knows God because we are united with Christ. And only because we are united with Christ. We've seen the recognition, the revelation. Finally, as we finish up this morning, we come to response. Look at verses 16 to 22. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the, city, but the name of the city was Luz at the first Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. As we finish up this passage and look at this latter part, the response of Jacob to the revelation that God has just given him. There are three words simply to sum it up. The all, the stone, and the vow. Let's look at each of these. First, the all. Jacob is in awe of the fact that God has been present in this ordinary place. It's not as though Jacob stopped in some holy place he didn't find a place where, uh, where there, would be, uh, there, there were things already there that would make him think of God. This is just where he happened to lay down. 
because the sun had set. There he is. And now he realizes that in this ordinary place, God has made himself known. And he did not know it. There is a response of fear because he realizes the magnitude of what has just happened. The God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the God over angels is present here in this place. Now we know that, that love casts out all fear. First John, we know that the way that we relate to God is not in a kind of fear of terror. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Romans 8, 1, we know that we do not relate to God in this way, that we will not at the coming of Christ cry out that the mountains would cover us as the wicked will. Nonetheless, God is awesome. And I don't say that word lightly. He is truly awesome. And to be in his presence is in and of itself a fearful thing. Reverential awe. To treat God as a casual buddy is to dishonor him. It is to relate to God in a way that Scripture does not put out for us. The, the, the wonderful paradox of Scripture is that the God of the universe, who is infinite in majesty, whom we ought to fear, is the same God whom we cry out to as Abba. He is our Father. He is our friend. As Abraham is called a friend of God, and Jesus in John 15 calls us his friends. Those are his friends who trust in him, who follow him. And yet he is our great God. Is he both your father and your great majestic God? Do you fear God? Proverbs is clear that to fear God is to hate evil. You know, you can know now whether you fear God rightly. Do you hate sin? Does sin grieve your heart? Do you mourn? Do you beat your chest like the, the publican in Matthew 18 who cries out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm reading this little book on English reformers who were burned alive under uh, Bloody Mary, under her reign. And it's interesting to me, one of them, his name is not uh, in my mind right now, but one of them was led to be burned alive and it took 45 minutes for him to die. Because the fire kept going out, he burned for 45 minutes. And listen to this. As he was dying, he was beating his chest with a burning nub, saying, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. That is the attitude of all of us to cry out to this God of mercy and to remember that we are sinners. And God is truly Awesome in every conceivable way. So we see here fear. The God of the universe has made himself known. This place, he concludes, is the house of God, the gate of heaven. Remember, the word Babylon means gate of the gods. That is man's attempt to make his way to God in his own way, in his own efforts, out of his own pride, to make his way to God. We know what God does with that. He destroys that. He frustrates those attempts. But this is God opening up the gate himself. This is truly the gate of God. And in Christ, the gate is wide open. Because Christ is the door. He's the way, the truth, the life. And all who come in through him find rest in heaven with this God. So we see the all. We also see the stone. As with Abraham and Isaac, Jacob erects a monument of this place, this event. He uses the stone that was under or beside his head to erect this monument. And as an, he does it as an act of consecration. He pours oil on top of it. And then he names the place Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. And if we go back to Jesus' words in John 1.51... This reminds us that Christ is the house of God. 
So really, we could think of it this way. When Christ refers to that, is Christ saying that he is the ladder, the stairway? Or is Christ saying that he is the place upon which the ladder is situated and the angels are ascending and descending? Yes and yes. We know that Christ is both the mediator, the one who joins heaven and earth. Yes. And we know that Christ himself is the dwelling place of God. He is God's temple. And it says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. Christ himself is the dwelling place of God. So we see the all, the stone to commemorate the place. And finally, we see the vow. This vow is a little strange when we read it. And it doesn't, doesn't really fit. It may strike us as strange because after all that God has revealed to Jacob, how can he make a vow that is conditional? Well, God, I tell you what, if you do, if you do this, then I will do that. There we go. I mean, didn't he just respond to God, this awesome, incredible, holy, angel-ruling God with awe and fear? And now he's making a conditional vow to God? But I think that is to misunderstand what is going on here. This vow is entirely in accord with God's promises. What Jacob is saying is that he will trust God to carry out his promises and that he will do certain things with the fruit of those fulfilled promises. If God watches over him and brings him back, then he'll worship here at this place. He cannot cannot worship here in this place unless God brings him back to it. Right, So, so he's, the vow is conditional in the sense that it, it has to arise. The things that he promises to do have to arise out of the fulfillment of those promises that God makes. If God blesses him as he promises, then Jacob will offer a tenth of that to the Lord. Going back to Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek in chapter 14. If he doesn't have anything, how can he give a tenth? But when God does what he promises to do, Jacob will come back to this place and he will offer up those blessings to the Lord in the form of a tithe. So now we have come fully to see God, our God, our Heavenly Father, as the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob, which will carry us through the remainder of Genesis. This really is kind of the turning of a page. The rest of Genesis. And this is is really neat as we go through this. Mark this down. Circle this. Write this over to the side. And in fact, what you could do is go through and make a list as we finish through Genesis. Make a list of all the ways that you will see God fulfilling these promises to Jacob. Because we will see many ways in which God will do what he said he was going to do in the remaining chapters of the book of Genesis. God is the God of Jacob. We see this in the recognition of Isaac as he blesses Jacob. We see it in the revelation of the Lord as he appears and speaks to Jacob. And we see it in Jacob's response. He trusts in this God. He will look to him to fulfill his promises. And isn't that the way all of us are to live our lives. This very day, we are waiting on many things from the Lord. We are waiting on all these promises of Scripture. We are like Jacob out in the middle of nowhere. And God is saying to us, trust me. Trust my promises. I am with you and I will bring you to a new heaven and a new earth. Christ has gone away to prepare a place for us. And he will come again for us to receive us to himself. Whether you're healthy or sick, whether you're tired or energetic, whether you are depressed or elated, God is your God if you are in Christ and he will be faithful. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for your word once again, and we praise you that you reveal yourself to us through it, that every time we open up your word, it is like we are there lying on that ground, seeing that vision, that vision in a dream. We see your glory. We see your faithfulness. We see your keeping, shepherding power, your protection. We see your steadfast love to us, God. We praise you for what you have revealed to us this morning through Scripture. We ask that we would be hearers of the word and doers of the word. That as we meditate on this this week, Lord, that you would transform us, that you would transform us into Christ's likeness and help us to put these things into practice, to believe that the God of Jacob is our God, that you are our keeper and shepherd. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.